Uh, good morning, everyone, and to those who are on live streaming this morning. We're grateful for you watching and listening in. We're going to teach you this morning on how to fight, uh, especially married people, but if you're single, you can learn a lot from this as well. We've been in this vein. We've been teaching for weeks uh, just about re relationship recovery, how to deal with all kinds of things from offenses to bitterness to unforgiveness, all kinds of things where the enemy tries to tries to ruin our own spiritual lives uh, through the things that happen to us from other people. And um, we do marriage counseling, pre-marriage counseling, and uh, one, of the, one of the lessons we always try to get across to those that we're working with is that uh, we want to teach you how to fight. And they're always surprised by that. I, we always get a, that funny look on their face like, you're going to teach us how to fight. And that we fight, that, that uh, Heather and I, we've been married 43 years. We don't fight like we used to. And it's nothing like it was uh, at one point in time. It kind of, uh, all the rough edges get evened out. Something happens, you learn some things. But, uh, but we do fight. And I don't know anyone really who doesn't, from time to time, have conflict. Uh, some may just be in what they call intense fellowship. But uh, people do have struggles with relationships. And then, then things happen, like uh, you know this crazy COVID time that we've gone through. Uh, where I used to pastor up north, uh, uh, on this little website for that region, it, it tells you how many people uh, get divorced each month. And it's on average, um, I've been watching it for about 13 years now, it's, it's a divorce a day. Usually there's 30. Every month, I don't even know who's marrying these people. Or maybe they're not getting marriage counseling. They certainly don't know how to fight. And, um, and then during COVID, I watched it. It went up to about 103 at one point in time. That's a lot of divorces, a lot of marriages that bite the dust. And I think there's some clues in this morning's message about how that happens and why that happens. Are you interested in learning how to fight? how to fight fair. You're going to fight. You might be able to learn how to do it in a way that's productive and, and helpful. And if you're single, uh, there's some things you can learn from this as well. Um, if you go with me to 1 Peter chapter 3, while you're looking for that, and I think it'll come up behind me, 1 Peter chapter 3, um, we're going to be looking at verse 8. Jen, if you want to get there. Uh, I, I collect little tweets, little things that People have written about marriage struggles. Here's one. It says there's two kinds of people. Those who pack six days in advance for a trip, and then the ones who wake up that day and realize they need to do a load of laundry, and then they marry each other. One guy wrote, she said, listen, I just found out my husband eats spaghetti with a spoon, so I can't listen to your problems now. <clears throat> One guy says, after 35 years on the planet, I've just learned one of the most important lessons that I want to pass on to you fellows. She can eat your fries, but you can't eat hers. Isn't that a truth? One guy wrote and he said, uh, I just said, you're not the boss over me to my wife. <laughs> but I think she can tell I was bluffing. One lady, she wrote, she said, my husband brought home unfrosted Pop-Tarts. 
and now I have to file for divorce. We had a good run. Lady wrote, my husband annoyed me last night. So this morning when I got up, I slightly adjusted the temperature on the toaster. It's a way to get even. My husband asked me if I had any annoying, or I'm sorry, my wife asked if I had any annoying habits and then got all offended during the PowerPoint presentation. <laughs> husband, he says, does it bother you when I, and she said, yes. Then there's the wife uh, who was grilling her husband about something he had done. And while they're talking in the car, they're traveling, she reached over and she turned up the heated seat in the, in the summertime, cranked it up full. He's over there sweating about this third degree that he's getting, not realizing that she had turned up the heated seat. Well, lots of funny stuff out there. Let's go to First Peter. Peter's uh, an end-time book, and he's, he starts off in, in verse 1. He's writing to wives. And then he gets down to verse 7. He's writing to husbands. So the context is marriage. Then watch verse 8. He does something different. He says, finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another, love as brothers, be tender-hearted, courteous. Courteous has to do with how you fight. Uh, sometimes when we're fighting, we're not very courteous. Not rendering for evil for evil or rendering uh, um, reviling for reviling, tit for tat. You do this to me, so I, I'm going to hurt you back. You said this hard thing to me, now I'm going to say this back. And so this is now, I think he just switched. In verse 8, I think he's talking about church. I don't think he's talking about marriage anymore. Uh, he could be, and it all applies because everything that applies to a marriage applies to the church. And everything that applies to the church applies to a marriage. God's created two institutions. The first one he created was marriage. The second one was the church. And they're, they're both operating on the exact same principle. What, ha what applies to one completely applies to the other. In fact, um, Peter, um, I'm sorry, the Apostle Paul, when he was telling Timothy and Titus how to find a pastor for the church, he said, just go to their house. Look how he's treating uh, uh, his spouse and, and look how he's treating the kids. You'll learn what kind of pastor he's going to be in the pulpit. It's profound, the similarities between home and church. Uh, they're, they're the same. Verse 8, he could be writing about church, and it perfectly fits. And he's, he says, uh, not rendering evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing. Knowing that we're, we're called to this, that we may inherit a blessing. Then he says in verse 10, he's quoting David. He says, he who would love life and see good days. Doesn't that sound like a lyric in a song? He that would love life and see good days. Let him refrain his tongue from evil, his lips from speaking deceit. The idea with deceit here is sometimes when we have a gripe with someone, uh, it's so small, it's so petty, it's the Pop-Tart kind of thing, and so you have to embellish it. You have to actually make it sound worse than what it really is, and you end up, you lie. It's, it's, it's deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. In other words, 
you have to be the one to reconcile. You have to be the first one to say, look, we need to talk. We need to work this out. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. His ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. This, this whole thing applies to a marriage. In fact, if you just applied it to your marriage, it could save everything. What he's saying, what Peter's saying here that's so profound, you can love life and see good days no matter what other people do to you. They can revile you. They can reject you. They can speak bad about you. But as long as you don't do it back and then you actually go to the other level and you start blessing them, doing good to them. So uh, you can actually love life and see good days not based on what they've done to you, based only on how you respond. You have power over or not whether you love life or see good days, not them. You can say, I'm miserable because of them, because of what they've done, what they say, how they treat me. No, not according to this section of Scripture. You're only miserable because of the way you respond. You start blessing them. You start moving into doing good things for them. It'll change your marriage. Ephesians chapter 4, uh, beginning in verse 25 and going down to verse 32, it says the same kind of thing. And he's writing to spirit-filled Christians and, and here's what he says in both these places. He says, being tender-hearted, forgiving. He's talking about forgiving. He says, but be, be tender-hearted one toward another. The opposite of tender-hearted is hard-hearted. Let's take a few minutes and, and explore this whole concept of being hard-hearted because I think being hard-hearted is what kills our marriages, kills all of our relationships. Years ago when I watched TV, there was uh, advertisements. It may still be out there. I'm not sure. But it's, it's all about hypertension or high blood pressure. And they called it the silent killer. I don't know if you remember those advertisements or not. All about the silent killer. This thing, you're not even aware of it. Next thing you know, it, it kills you. And uh, uh, high blood pressure, I think that's the, that's the medication that they were selling at the time. But I think hardness of heart is the silent killer. I think hardness of heart, where the way you treat people can kill your spiritual life. It actually affects your relationship with the Lord. Uh, you, can't, you can't turn hard-heartedness up for one person and then go and be tender-hearted toward another or be tender-hearted toward the Lord. It just doesn't work that way. It, it's, it's either you're hard-hearted or you're tender-hearted. And he's urging Christians to keep their hearts soft. And we'll give you some tips this morning on how to keep your heart soft. Being hard-hearted is a killer. It kills faith. It stops spiritual growth. Uh, for example, uh, Jesus did this whole masterful thing about the sower going out to sow and he describes different heart conditions. A good heart, an honest heart that's open, that receives the seed. There's a, an abundant crop. He talks about a heart filled with weeds that, that, that choke out the, the lust of other things, the, the pleasures that we're seeking that actually kill spiritual growth. And one of the things that he said is he said there's a thing called the stony ground. And he said that'll, that'll kill seed. That'll, that'll prevent real spiritual growth. So we can actually have a hard heart, a stony ground towards our spouse and then go and try to pray and get nowhere. Try to worship and it's flatline. 
but it's related. It's almost disjointed. You don't realize that the reason that you're not getting anywhere in worship is because of how you're treating someone else. It's almost like you can use it as a dipstick. Your, your relationship with the Lord is only as deep as your relationship with other people. We can't kid ourselves. It's not possible to have this robust, flowing spiritual life with the Lord and be treating each other out of the hardness of our heart, being unforgiving, uh, rendering evil for evil. It's just not possible. It's just not possible. You can actually snark with your spouse in the car on the way to church and get to church and get nothing. Not because the Lord doesn't want to. It's because of the hardness of our heart. Here's what Jesus said. He was talking to the disciples about the issue of divorce, which is very controversial. Very, people, very few sermons are ever mentioned the word divorce or even talk about divorce, but it's a fact of life. It happens. It's happened to people in our place, in our church here. I, I, I don't know any that are ongoing or people who are seeking it right now, but it has happened. Uh, it's happened to people. We have a, a people who come here whose hearts have been wounded and damaged through divorce. Someone rejected him. Someone who was over the moon in love with him at one point in time told him to get lost. It, it damages them. And sometimes we take those rocks and we build walls around our heart so that no one ever hurts us again. And the seed just bounces off. Somebody's going to have to take down that wall, that hardness of heart. It's a killer. It's a silent killer. Jesus, he, they were talking about divorce and uh, uh, the Pharisees were divorcing each other over the, the craziest thing. If the guy, if the wife burnt his toast, he could divorce her. All he had to do was say, I divorce you, I divorce you, I divorce you. Even among the Muslim uh, religion today, you can divorce a person by saying, I divorce you, I divorce you, I divorce you. And then marry somebody else and divorce them that same day. In fact, they just come up with a rule of just a couple years ago that said you could no longer divorce by text. In other words, they're texting, I divorce you, I divorce you, I divorce you. So easy divorce was the issue. Jesus was talking about that. They said, wait a minute, but it's in the Bible. And Jesus said, yeah, it's in the Bible. Moses wrote it, but he didn't write it as permission. He was saying, God was saying, okay, these people's hearts are so hard toward each other, they're going to divorce, so at least let's be equitable. At least let's be just. Let's make it fair. If you're going to divorce, you're going to write her, you're going to write a certificate. His fault, he's decided to divorce me. I didn't divorce him. I've got a certificate that shows that he divorced me. At least let's make it just. If you're going to do it, Here's, a, here's a, a better way of doing it. That's what the, from the very beginning, we're taking it as permission. Well, it was never permission. Uh, from the very beginning, God made man and woman, and he wanted them to be married for life. That was what God intended. But it's happened. It happens in our society, and it's a, it's a, it's a real killer. It makes it hard for us. It makes it hard for our kids to have spiritual open uh, relationship with the Lord. Talk about hardness of heart. Let's just keep going with this for a few minutes. There's this amazing story of hardness of heart. Uh, you know, we saw Pharaoh. 
he hardened his heart and wouldn't let the children of Israel out of Egypt. And then they got out through signs and wonders. God parted the Red Sea, got them out, fed them in a place where nothing grows, a complete desert. And they, they not only survived, they thrived. He fed them miraculously. Water come out of a rock and, 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 and satisfied the, their thirst and the thirst of all of their animals. I mean, it was miraculous. And then they hardened their heart toward the Lord and toward the uh, leadership that God had given them and toward each other. And they died in the wilderness, but they hardened their heart. You would think people who saw great miracles like the Red Sea parting would not have a hard heart because they, they saw great signs and wonders. Many people have said, boy, if I could, if my family could only see a healing, could only see a great, a great miracle, they would all surrender to Jesus. Well, not everybody. It depends on the hardness of your heart. These people, you can read this in, in Hebrews. There's a powerful section in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7, where the Spirit is speaking and speaking to the church. Where you are in Peter, just tells left and go over a few places, a quarter of inch of my of, of Bible. And he tells this whole story. It's a, a prophetic warning by the Spirit. Today, if you'll hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the years of rebellion, the time of rebellion in the wilderness. They actually hardened their heart. They couldn't hear from the Lord anymore. They departed from the Lord, says verse 13, but exhort one another daily. That means we have to be together. While it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. He's warning spirit-filled believers that there's a... There's a death to our spiritual life, and it's called hardness of heart, and it comes largely out of our relationships with each other. And it happens. It happens. He's warning about this. We see it in, in, the, in the scripture, and there's an amazing story of um, Jesus goes to synagogue, and they knew he would, they knew he was coming. And they said, uh, let's, let's, let's work this out so that if Jesus heals on the Sabbath, we can kill him for breaking the law. And his hand is aged. And one guy, one of the Pharisees says, I got a neighbor. I got a neighbor. His hand is like driftwood. His hand is just withered right up. I'll bring him to synagogue, and we'll stand him in front of Jesus. And if Jesus heals him, we can kill him. They didn't care about the man. They didn't care about the Sabbath. They didn't care about church. They didn't care about communion and fellowship. They just wanted to kill Jesus. And when you know it, Jesus shows up. You can read this in Mark chapter 3. Jesus shows up, and they push the guy forward. And he's got one hand that's all twisted. And there's a, there's a stigma. He can't work. He can't do. He doesn't have a normal life. Plus, there's this whole thing, you know, where they said, beware bad. And now God made his hand like, like a piece of driftwood. And so there's all that stigma, social stigma. And so they push the guy forward. And the scripture tells the story. And he says, Jesus looked around the room and he looked upon all of them with anger. He looked at them with anger and he was astonished at the hardness of their hearts. These were the spiritual leaders of the community. 
supposed to be the most religious people, and their hearts were the hardest. We should do a sermon on anger. Anyone here struggle with anger at all? Having anger is not down. They don't want to acknowledge that they have anger. They pretend it doesn't happen, and they push it down. They blow up somewhere else. They'll blow up during Dutch Blitz because it's been pushed down. It's, it, or play spoons together. It'll come out. Scuff your knuckles all up playing spoons. It'll come out sometime. It'll come out somewhere. It'll come out in some church split. It'll and among Mennonites, there's also a thing called the silent divorce where they stay married, but they don't love each other and they don't talk. They don't really relate. It's a silent divorce because there's so much stigma against divorce. Jesus got angry. So being angry is not a problem. In Ephesians... Uh, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26, it says, Be angry and sin not. In other words, it's possible to be angry for the right reason, at the right time, to the right degree, to the right person, and it be right. And then it's possible to be angry and sin, cross over into saying something, doing something that's sinful. Jesus got angry. I almost take... A twisted kind of comfort from that. <clears throat> if he got angry, maybe some of my anger is justified. He looked around the room, and he looked at them with anger for the hardness of their heart. And he looked at the man. He come back to him, and he said, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it became whole and flexible and new, just exactly like the other hand. What an amazing moment. What an amazing miracle. Right in front of everybody. Everybody saw it. The whole church saw it. And the Pharisees left that building trying to figure out a way to kill Jesus. That now they're justified in killing him. Talk about hardness of heart. We think that if people see a miracle, it'll change everything. It doesn't always. It depends on the condition of the heart. Amen? How do you keep a heart soft? How do you keep your heart tender? Well, I think the number one way is forgiving, being forgiving, being quick to forgive, forgiving always. Even Jesus was predisposed to forgive. He said, if you blaspheme me, I'll forgive you. You blaspheme the Holy Spirit, you're in big trouble. But as far as me, I've already decided. I've already decided, it doesn't matter what you say, I will forgive you. That's amazing. This whole forgiveness, I often will pray and say, Lord, flush my heart of all the sand, the gravel, the stones, the stuff that's building up. Flush my heart with forgiveness. It's a powerful, powerful tool. Being quick to forgive, being quick to repent. Quick to repent acknowledges that you did something wrong. No one has to drag it out of you. You don't have to, you don't have to uh, get caught in the act you're already willing to talk about it. You're willing to get past it. You're already saying, I don't like that. I don't want to live that way. I don't know how to break the pattern that I'm in, but I don't like this pattern. And you keep your heart soft until God gives you the breakthrough through acknowledgement, through repeated confession and, and acknowledging that, both to yourself, to God, and to other people. It's a powerful thing. It'll keep your heart soft. I think... Uh, 
I think another way to keep your heart soft is being open to correction. That when someone says something to you, you don't fall apart. You don't become defensive. You don't reject it. You don't, re you don't say, but you've got this problem. That's what kills a marriage. It kills friendships. Ah, oh, yeah, you touch that, that little thing that I do, but you've got this problem. And the enemy, he'll supply you with those things. Yeah, you, you do this. You don't like what I do, but I don't like what you do. Tip for tat. This whole idea of, of being open to criticism it takes a mature heart. There's about 12 verses in the book of Proverbs alone that says, receive correction. Receive, uh, the Living Bible says, get all the help you can get. In other words, someone says, uh, they find the courage to come to you and they say, there's something I see here that has to change. And you actually embrace that. You actually grab them by both shoulders, bring them in close, kiss them right in the middle of the forehead, and say, thank you for speaking to me. Thank you for, thank you for finding the courage to let me know. I need to see how others see me. I need that perspective. Thank you for, thank you for sharing that. I, I'm working on that, and, and I will overcome. Thank you. Pray for me. But do that sincerely will keep your heart soft. Nobody likes it when you confront them and they twist it all around and they, they make it look like you're the one with the problem. Being teachable, uh, being willing to change. I find people who have a hard heart are stuck in their ways. They don't want to move. They don't want to change. They don't want to grow. They're stuck in their ways. It's because their heart is hard. God doesn't want to make you grow. He doesn't want to force you into new truth. He doesn't want to force you into new spiritual frontiers. He doesn't want to force you. And, and I see people, oftentimes, the, the one, one spouse will be wanting to grow and go on with the Lord, and the other is stuck in their ways. And it's, it's, I think it's a condition of heart. I think it's a silent killer called hardness of heart. Having a, a tender conscience keeping your conscience in good working order. Keeping your conscience in good working order. It's 2 o'clock in the morning, and you're driving somewhere deep in the county, and you stop at the stop sign, and you come to a complete stop, and then you move on. That's a good conscience. <laughs> that's a conscience that's working. Doesn't matter what other people see. Doesn't matter if there's a policeman behind the sign. Your conscience says, "This is the way I live." I had a young guy one time. He he said, uh, "Would you be my mentor?" And I said, "I don't. I don't know that I want to do that." He said, "I I need you to be my mentor. In fact, I want you to speak into my life." I said, "I don't think you do." Is no, I really do. I want you to, if you see something, I want you to tell me. I said, I don't, I don't know that you want me to do that. He said, really, I, I'm inviting you to be my mentor and to speak into my life. As we're driving, and he's telling me this, he didn't stop at a single stop sign. We're driving on this trip. He didn't stop at a single stop sign. I said, well, we can begin with stop signs. I mean, if you're blowing through stop signs in the natural, what kind of stop signs are you blowing through in the spirit? What kind of stop signs are you blowing through with pornography? What kind of stop signs are you blowing through with other areas of your life? 
Well, I said we're going to teach on rules for fighting. Are you interested in some rules? How to, and if you're going to fight, you might better learn how to fight well, fight fair, fight in a way that's productive, that's constructive. Let me give you a few things. Uh, Ephesians 4.26, we mentioned about uh, being angry and sin not. But he says, he gives us a major clue. He's, he says, uh, do not let the sun go down on your anger. In other words, you're having this conflict and you're really ticked off, but you say in yourself, I'm not going to let this day come to an end without me taking some kind of steps to resolve this. I'm not going to carry this over into my sleep. In fact, you might better, you might better just say, I'm going to write off a whole night of sleep. You're not going to sleep well anyway. You're going to wake up miserable. So it takes spiritual, spiritual uh, leadership. It takes maturity to say, I'm, I'm going to make this thing right before the sun goes down. I'm not going to wait for the person. Uh, by the way, it, it doesn't work if you wait for them just before they nod off. You want to have a fight. You want to talk it all out. Don't do that. That's, that's going to kill that relationship. Book appointments. Uh, say, look, I need to have a fight with you. i got three things I need to square away. Can I get an hour of your time? Can we go for a walk? And you actually, rather than ambush them just before they're going to sleep, or they just sit down with a bowl of popcorn, they're about to watch a movie, and you say, i got some things I need to work through with you. That, that fight's not going to go well. They're not really going to listen. And listening is a real important thing where you sit down and you say, okay, I'm going to give you time. Tell me everything. Let's get it all out. Tell me everything that's bothering you, and I will hear you. That's a major ingredient in, in fighting well. But don't spring it on them. Say, look, I got some stuff to work through. I need, I need a time with you to sit down. Uh, we, we go for a latte. We go for a drive. We go for a walk. Somehow, I, I need to sit down and work some stuff out with you. By the way, uh, a good rule of thumb something to factor into your marriage early. We don't fight in the bedroom. That's, that's where we say we love each other. That's, that's for intimacy. That's where things become really open and trusting. And, and you have to say, this place is sanctified. We don't fight here. We don't discuss the bills here. We don't discuss your last purchase here. We're, this, this room is not for fighting. We'll fight on the porch. We'll fight on the lawn. We'll fight, we'll fight somewhere, but not here. It's just somebody has to decide that. By the way, all these rules for fighting, uh, you, have to, you have to agree on them when you're not fighting. You don't do this in the middle of a fight. You don't bring this out in the middle of a fight. You have to say, look, we're going to fight. Here are the rules. Number one, we don't fight in this space. Number two, we don't ambush each other. Number two, number three, we're going to listen. The whole goal is to listen. I may not agree, but I'm going to hear you out. And we'll set the clock once a week if, it, if it's necessary to, to drain off all that frustration. We don't fight in front of the kids. Our kids grew up, they had no idea that Heather and I fought. Uh, not that we're hiding anything. We're, we live very real lives, but we never fought in front of the kids. That's just, it, that would never happen. Um, you don't fight by text. You don't fight by email. Let me just say this. Text and email are the lowest forms of communication known to man. Uh, anything that's of the heart, 
you don't risk it with a terse text or, or even a long email. Uh, even among ourselves as brothers and sisters, we don't text that. We, don't, we sit down face to face, forehead to forehead. That's how we're going to live. Uh, we don't write anonymous letters. Uh, we don't send out... Uh, one time, Heather got a, a, a text at midnight, someone wanting to vent something. Well, that wrecked her night uh, for sleeping. That's not fair. That's not kind. That's not being courteous one to another. As, as Peter had said. We don't walk out of a fight and we don't slam doors. We, don't, we never slam doors. I think that's really important. We speak with respect. We don't have, we don't have to trash them. We don't have to call them names. Uh, we just would never say, never call each other names, never use language that brings them down. The other thing we decided in the first year after we got married... Uh, we used to say things like, well, this isn't working out. Maybe we should never have gotten married in the first place. We never used the word divorce, but everything up to that. We'd say, well, you know, I, I, wish, I wish we had not married, that kind of thing. There was a point in time where we sat down where we weren't fighting, and I said, listen, Heather, from now on, let's never say that again. Let's never use that language ever again, and we didn't. And the reason is, is because we found out that it grieved the heart of God, it hurts, it wounds us, makes us feel insecure rather than security, uh, that we need, that we, we can weather anything together. But it also, we found out, it just made the devil too happy. We decided we're not going to give him any joy. We're never going to use the D word. We're not going not to give that to him. I, I've had different times where we're, we're, we're building up for a really good fight, a loud, raucousy flight, fight, and then all of a sudden we realize, one of us will realize, you know, I think the devil's at work here. I think the devil's trying to bring us down. And we discern that you're not my enemy. Somehow he's, he's at work here. He wants to hurt each other. So calling it what it is, calling it... Naming it for what it is, recognizing the devil is at work. Really, really important. Pray it through. Uh, let's see what else I have here. Yeah, here's the final one I'll say. Never say never. Never say never, never say always. Uh, if you want to see your fight jacked up to another level, say, you always do this, or you never do that. That'll take that fight to an entirely different level because they become defensive. They say, no, that's not true. I always do this, and you never do that. No, no, you always do this, and I never do that. Just someone has to decide that we're never going to use the word never. We're going to always avoid the word always. It will wreck a relationship. Let me finish by saying this. Some of you are not married. You're single. If you want to practice being married, practice with your dad. And, and boys, you practice with your mom. How you treat your mom is how you're going to treat your wife. That's a fact of life. How you relate to your dad is how you're going to relate to your husband. It's a sure tell. It's just the way it is. And so if you're slamming doors on your dad and giving him the cold shoulder because he wouldn't give you the keys to the car or something like that, wouldn't let you do what you want to do, that's how you're going to treat your husband. 
It just always carries over. That hardness of heart that you're experiencing with that, that's going to carry over, and it's going to be a relationship killer. It's going to hurt your marriage. So you have to decide. I'm practicing. I'm using my dad as a... I'm using my mom as a, as a way to practice on how to be married. It'll, ch it'll change not only that relationship, but it's just as true as can be. It's a great place. To, that's how you're going to treat your spouse when you get on your own. You may not think so, but you will. You'll revert to it as sure as anything. Anyone believe what I'm saying? You've seen it happen? I, I've seen it happen many times. Let's stand together. This should be, this should make for some interesting discussion on the way home. Father, we love you and we love your word. We love your ways. Lord, I pray that you'd spare us from the silent divorce or the other kinds of divorce. And it's happened. And, I'm at, and those who've had that happen, I'm asking for healing. I'm asking that you'd flush their hearts with forgiveness that you'd heal their heart, making it tender again, taking down all the stony walls that they've built to keep their heart from being hurt again. God, help us, I pray. Thank you for this reminder, the perils of a stony heart, a hard heart. Father, I need to hear it. We need to hear it. I'm grateful for it. Thank you for speaking to us today. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.